Uh, it's good to be here this morning. Um, I, I always consider it a um, kind of a very personal, intimate thing to be, to come to someone's church and preach and be amongst, you know, their, uh, their people. Um, and so I don't take this lightly. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, I appreciate you leaning into this series. Um, uh, it is, uh, it, it seems that the conversation of, of race uh, in America, but I think since we're talking about the church, has, has, eluded, has eluded us, I think, in a way that um, God want, wanted to move us forward. But I, I feel like God has is, is given us an opportunity, the church, the evangelical church, to kind of uh, wrestle and work through these things the right way. Um, how many of you are familiar with the book called Divided by Faith? Is anybody familiar with that book? Okay, highly recommend it to you. Um, Michael Emerson, he's a professor, I think, at a seminary, and him and a, uh, another gentleman wrote the book. But really, the book is about, um, they, they did surveys with white evangelical Christians and black evangelical Christians. I believe this is back in 1999. And where they started was, they started here. They said, there's a problem of race still today in America, back then in 1999. And they said, of all of the institutions in our country, they said if there was ever an institution that would be able to solve uh, the problem of, of racial division, they said it would be the church. And so they set out to find out how did white evangelicals view race issues of race and racism in America, and how black evangelicals um, viewed it. And they, what they found is two things. They found that um, the church was as divided about the idea of racism, right, as those who were non-believers. They also found out that the evangelical church in America, instead of being... Uh, an institution that would help work against that, in many ways, it was an institution that perpetuated it. Very, very fascinating book and study. Um, and so this conversation of race is not an easy one. Um, let, me, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me share this um, as, we, as we move forward. Um, because I, I do think that God has given us an opportunity. One of the things that I, I recognized after the death of Michael Brown, um, let me give you a little bit of background. So I, I was part of uh, Ferguson Florson School District, came through the Ferguson Florson School District. Um, we lived in North County. Um, I was a youth pastor. Um, our church was right on the border of Delwood and Ferguson. We had students in our youth group that lived in Canfield Green. That's where, where Michael Brown was shot. And so and we, you know, that QT and all of that, all of that was just uber familiar with. I mean, that was our, our stomping ground. So, I mean, so, so when that happened, I mean, it was just uber surreal. My son, who was 15 at the time, uh, he was getting taller. He's darker like me. He had dreads, you know. So I got all these things going on in my mind. Um, anyway, um, after the, regardless of what you think about the incident and what happened, um, what I realized in the aftermath and all of what happened in St. Louis and regionally and even nationally 
two things came to mind. Well, actually, one thing, um, but kind of in two different ways. The surprise nationally about this situation and the events and the riots and protests, and then even local surprise, and even amongst the church, there was this idea that we thought we were further along in race relations than what manifested, right? Um, And that was as it related to the nation, St. Louis region, right? Um, But what I particularly saw in the church, uh, particularly on my white evangelical friends, was uh, many of them recognized that, hey, I don't know everything about the race issue. I don't know everything about this. But I, I, I think I'm missing something. And I began to hear that more. And I think that kind of captivated, I think, you know, white evangelicals is like, hey, am I missing something? Because I don't get the protests. I don't get all of the the, the, the anger and what's going on. But I felt like that was an opportune moment. Now, mind you, I mean, it was, you know, it was incredibly emotional for me in so many different ways. Taught in Ferguson, Florissant as well. Um, so working through all that. But the thing that I, that I saw that potentially was redemptive was I, I asked God, pray, and I said, God, you know, you're sovereign over all. Not that you sanction things to happen, but things, nothing happens on the earth that you're not in control of. And so, Lord, I feel like you work those things to good for the kingdom. And I said, so, Lord, what's behind all of this, right? And so one of the things that I received from the Lord as it relates to the body of Christ, um, Evangelical Church in America, was I felt like the Lord was saying, I am providing yet another opportunity for the church to get this right. And that in America, we, we, we haven't really got it right. Not that there, you know, not that there has been progress, but because there has. Um, but there are some things, some, some crucial foundational things that, and mind shifts and paradigms that need to shift in order for us to heal properly and um, do this thing in a way, in a way that, that, that God wants us to, to do. And so we're going to talk about some of that today through Revelation. Um, but here's a, here's a quote from uh, uh, Dr. Emerson's book. And he talks about this idea of a racialized society. So I'm going to read this, and I want you to think as I read this, and I'm going to read it twice. I want you to think, do I agree with that, what Dr. Emerson is saying? Is he, is he right on or is he not right? And if you agree or disagree, you know, answer that question to yourself, I, I disagree, and then say why you think that you know, you know, to yourself. But, but here's, here's, here's what he says. We live in a racialized society. A racialized society is a society wherein race matters profoundly for differences in life experience, life opportunity, and social relationships. A society that allocates differential economic, political, social, and even psychological rewards to groups along racial lines that are socially constructed. So I'm going to read that again. We live in a racialized society. A racialized society is a society where race matters profoundly 
for differences in life experience, life opportunity, uh, and social relationships, a society that allocates differential economic, political, social, and even psychological rewards to groups along racial lines that are socially constructed. So if nothing else, um, if, if, if nothing else, even if you don't agree with it totally, um, I would at least appeal to you and encourage you to at least say, you know what, there might be something to that, you know. There might be something to that as I think about our society, you know. Um, are there things that racially, you know, are are. are, are or, or maybe off, right? Um, so uh, we're going to use Revelation. Um, no, we're not going to use Revelation. That doesn't sound right, right? Because the Word of God is supreme overall. So let me rephrase that. Um, as Pastor said, th- uh, there is a theology of race in the Scripture, um, and that's where we're going to go. And we're going to be in Revelation in order to see what the Lord reveals to us um, about um, what He thinks and... Um, Maybe they'll speak to some of the things we, we think. All right, so Revelation um, uh, chapter 7, most, uh, the, the focal text is chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. But I need, to, I need to prepare your hearts and mind first before we enter the book of Revelation, okay? Because I got I to gotta, I gotta get you there because if, if I can help you see Revelation in a different way, it's going to root this passage better and you'll get more out of it. So, went to seminary, we, you know, we studied all the books and everything, you start, you know, preaching classes and all of that stuff, and the book of Revelation really doesn't play by the rules of like the other books. Um, it's so very different. It's so very different, and it's, and it's honestly the reason why many people don't spend time reading Revelation. Um, and so it's, it's so very different, and so I need to help lay the foundation so that, that we can in, in, engage into a certain approach as it relates to Revelation. So, so John, the Apostle John, who was in Jesus' inner circle, he receives a visitation, right? First of all, there's a revelation that's given to Jesus Christ to John, and he sees a vision, right? So what I need you to draw on is, um, as much as we can, we're such creatures of our five senses, right? We don't think a whole bunch about the unseen. We don't think a whole bunch about, you know, kind of the, um, uh, the kind of fantastic, mystical, magical side of God, right? Um, and so, but this book is filled with that. And if we just kind of move into it with the kind of a cavalier, casual attitude, what we talk about as it relates to, 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 to peoples and races and nations won't hit you like it's supposed to, right? So what I need you to do is I need you to move into that space where the God that you serve is that otherworldly God. Okay, so God is not like anything in anyone you know, although he does relate to us, right? Does that make sense? His being, right, and what he can do is not like anything we've ever encountered, except for those times where he allows us to counter bits and pieces of him. So Revelation, what we're going to read today, is God pulling back a veil for John to deliver to us, right, 
this picture of things that are happening in the unseen and things that are to come that are fantastic. Not fantastic in the sense like, that's fantastic, but kind of fantastical, right? And you have to know and you have to enter the space where it's all true and real. Like, there are a few places in Scripture that reveal something visually about our God, but Revelation does, right? There are a few places in Scriptures that reveal a different form of Christ, right? A, a different physical form that he takes, but in Revelation does, right? So you got to enter into that mystical part of your mind. I remember when I was a kid, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. I'm older than some of you. I remember when Star Wars came out, right? How many of you have seen Star Wars? Like, by the way, I mean, that episode for that first Star Wars, I mean, I, I, that's just the best, right? Because it came out of nowhere. And so as it relates to this engaging this part of our, our, our imagination, I remember seeing there was nothing like it. Like there was this story that was, it wasn't happening on earth. It was happening on this other planet and this other world and there was other creatures and there's these, these, this unseen force called the force. And I just remember as a kid, I was like, wow. Like, and so when you think in terms of what is going on here in the book of Revelation, it's more in touch with that unseen of our imagination, not our imagination of things that are not real, but our imagination of things that are real because these things are real, right? So I'm hoping that is setting you up to go into that, go into that space. So I'm going to read uh, several, uh, Revelation 7, 9 through 14 because that's our focal passage to kind of get us going. And then I'm going to go back and read some things that will really set this, hopefully set this up for us. Appreciate you guys being here today. So I'm going to start Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, verse 9 through 12. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So, let me set up just kind of, uh, if you're going to think about the book of Revelation, this might help um, those of you that kind of have systematic minds. So if you think about the book of Revelation, think about kind of two, two sections, right? So there's the first section that deals with, like, things that are. So, so John, the first chapter, chapter 1 through chapter 3, is dealing with this revelation, all right, or this information about seven churches that are in Asia or Asia Minor, right? And Jesus has a specific word to those specific churches, right? So that's so that's that would be the first block. Okay. The second deals with the things that shall take place later, right? So we got the first part of it is you know this this message to these seven churches, these individual messages messages from Jesus, but then. Um, uh, chapter 4 through the rest of the book, right, 
It's about the things to come. So the book of Revelation, it is a divine revelation, right? It's a prophecy. It's a true, right? That's what true prophecy is. People use that term. And prophecy is that which comes from God, whether in message or in vision, right, that he is allowing to be revealed to us. So this is the book of Revelation. It's a revelation. It's a prophecy, okay? Um, so what I want to do is I'm going to read, and you can, you can kind of mark these things. I'm going to read from chapter 1. So just think chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 5, and then we will be in chapter 7. Um, so I want to read that because the imagery is going to help you, uh, and it's going to help us all. So I'm going to read Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Okay, And this is just kind of to help you orient it, be oriented in the book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the, thing that, the things that must soon take place, he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Go to chapter 4. So John sees a vision, right? And it starts right here at chapter 4. He sees a vision. He sees a vision of what's going on in this unseen realm, right? Listen, this is what he sees. After this, I look, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Who is that? Who's on the throne? This is God. The book refers to him as he who sits on the throne. You get a visual snapshot of some of the things that John saw when he saw God. None of us have ever seen God. Maybe you've had a vision. I do believe in visions. But even Moses, when Moses asked to see God... Uh, God said, no man can see my face and live, right? So he showed him his backside, whatever, you know, that would be like. But, you know, it's amazing. But here, you get a picture, a visual, some visual images of God. I love that the book presents God in some of the rawness of his beauty, majesty, and strength which we don't talk and think a lot about. I'm even glad that the, 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 type, the designation, the, the name designated here in Revelation for God is he who sits on the throne. You don't even need to ask the question, what throne? Like some of you guys watch Game of Thrones, right? You don't even need to ask the question. It's the throne, right? But he sits on it. 
and it gives a glimpse of what that appearance is like. I'm going to continue. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with, with gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashings of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits. And I know I read it fast, but imagine in your mind what that must be like. Imagine in your mind. I mean, it's like, you know, the, the, the uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, meets Harry Potter, meets, you know, whatever fantastical, you know, images you may have. But magnify that by infinity. This is awesome. And before the throne, uh, there was as it as it is, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. These are all things that John is seeing. And the four living creatures, each of them with, the, with six wings, are all full of eyes all around within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their, their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you. Our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they, ex they existed and were created. Chapter 5, the vision continues. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written with, within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So God has something in his hand. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. So here, Jesus called the Lamb of God here, right, appears in another form, right? Unlike the form, his form on earth, he appears as a lamb, that was slain, seven horns, and has a different form, right? This is magical and fantastic. But more importantly, he has the power and the authority to open the scroll that's been sealed. Verse 8, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Remember that passage. We're going to come back to it. We're going to refer to it. 
And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voices of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads of thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all of them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down in worship. So I read those passages in order to root your mind in this is what's going on. It's within this context right, that we see the passage there in Revelation 5, 9 about nations, tribe, language, and tongue. And we also see in verse 7. Right, this is what God chose to reveal to John and to reveal to us, right? This is what he chose to reveal. Okay. Back to Revelation 7 and 9. We talk about this multitude. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white, with palm branches in their hands. I'll stop there. So here's this multitude that's standing before the throne of God from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. In chapter 5, verse 9, you see that same language about people that were ransomed. Right? So, my question to you, another question I have for you, I'm a teacher, I'm sorry, it happens. How does John know that this great multitude is from every nation, tribe, language, tongue. How does he know that? It's a vision, right? He's seeing. So what does he see in this great multitude that indicates that they are from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue? Something about their physical appearance, right? How else would he know? It doesn't say that they said anything. So he is seeing something physically about this group. I believe he's seeing skin color. Or things that would, or phenotypic traits, physical traits that indicate that this group is from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. Isn't it interesting that the Lamb of God, he who sits on the throne, chose to reveal that image to us? What does it say about the one who sits on the throne that he wanted to reveal that to his servants, to us? I think it says a lot. So let's explore that. Let's explore first what it says about the Lamb and He who sits on the throne, and then we'll explore what it might say about us. Right? So here's the first thing. In chapter 5, verse 9, it talks about that the Lamb ransomed these people. 
Now, ransom is a strong word, right? It's not just like he delivered them. Ransom's a strong word. How many of you remember this movie? It's probably 12, maybe even 15 years old. It was called Ransoms. Mel Gibson starred in it, okay? It's an older movie, okay? So Mel Gibson, I don't remember his profession, but he's, he's a wealthy guy, and him and his wife have a 10-year-old boy, right? Good kid, cute-looking kid. And one day, they're out in the park, right? And there's some sort of festival going on, and mom and dad are there walking, boys in between them, you know, and everybody's around, and they got ice cream, and they got balloons, got balloons. And Mel Gibson and his wife just stopped to turn and talk. I mean, not even a minute. They're talking like this, they turn their back to look at something, and they turn back, and the boy's gone. And there's people everywhere. And of course, like, they freak out. You know, they go looking for him. They can't find him. It's well into the evening. They call the police. They can't find the boy. Later that evening, they get a call from a kidnapper. He says, we have your boy. We have your boy. Yeah, right. <laughs> and Mel Gibson and his wife are just sick, right? The FBI comes in, and they're trying to negotiate and all of that, and the story goes on. And this boy is being, he's, he's, he's being ransomed. They offer a ransom, right? In order for you to get him back, you got to pay something. And I have a son and a daughter, and so, you know, uh, like at that time, you know, I was just kind of feeling that movie, man, like what that would be like. That would just be horrible. And there's a scene in the movie where the negotiators, you know, they have the phone. You know, they got one guy on the phone, another guy listening. They're taking notes and everything. And Mel Gibson's wife is just crying, and she's rocking. She's thinking, you know, never going to get this boy back. And Mel Gibson is just becoming very frustrated and frantic about, like, all the different, you know, things that the negotiators are doing. And he grabs the phone from one of the negotiators, and he screams into the phone, Give me back my son! And, and just drops the phone, and the phone, you know, the people on the line hang up, and he's just sick and broken. And in the story, they ended up, you know, getting the boy back at the end, but that is the language, ransom, that is the language that is used here, that those people were ransomed, right? That multitude was ransomed, Right? It was part of the plan to have that picture of this multitude that no one could count from every tribe, nation, language, and tongue. That was part of the plan of redemption that the Lamb and he who sits on the throne had. That was always the plan. That that picture would be like that. It wasn't a different or new plan. The plan was to have this great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. Hey, listen to this, and maybe you know this. Hey, God is an international God. Right? Hey, but think about it like this. So, so, so right, during the Olympics, whose flag does God wave? What's God's preferred language? his preferred skin color. God's an international God. You know how I know? Genesis 12, 3. 
tells Abraham, all right, your offspring will be a blessing to many nations. How is his offspring, how is this seed a blessing to many nations? We just read it there. The lamb, the, the root of David, that's Jesus, who brings redemption to all these nations that we see. God is an international God. Always has been. Always will be. Has an international mission, has international concern. Always has, right? God's not a nationalist. God's not a nationalist. He's not. And I, I, don't, I don't mean that to... He's, he's not. Hey, Sometimes when our thinking isn't challenged, like, like unconsciously, things just kind of, they just kind of grow up in us. And, you know, of course, like, like we got to be careful about the, and again, I do not mean this in offensive way. We have to be careful about the nationalism that seeps into the God and country, right? What does that mean as it relates to this text? You, you feel me? Like, what? What does that mean? Like, is the Lamb of God viewing things the same way we do as it relates to nations? Whose thoughts and views need to be adjusted? I think the scripture suggests that maybe ours do. And maybe, you know, maybe, maybe we're all there. So the first thing that we learned, that this was part of the plan, right? This was part of the plan all the time. I remember when I was in seminary, I was, uh, I, uh, whew, hardest work I've ever done academically. Man, they ring you out at Covenant. Oh, God, I'm still feeling it. It's been 10 years. <laughs> Hardest, hardest academic work I've ever done before. Uh, man, learning Hebrew and Greek, oh God, you know. I have to, and true confession is good for the soul. I threw my Hebrew book across the room one time. I did. I did. I literally threw it across the, boom, hits the wall. My wife's like, babe, you all right? Yeah, I'm good. Didn't tell her what happened. But anyway, I took a job with grounds because uh, I like physical labor. I love cutting grass, you know, chopping wood and all that stuff. And so I felt like it would be a good, you know, kind of balance. I needed extra money too, but it would be a good kind of balance of being in school all day. And, um, you know, one day, and so I, I worked even through the summers. And uh, uh, one day, at the beginning of the week, my, my boss says, hey, we're going to plant some flowers around campus. You know, there's, we had these quadrants. He's like, okay, quadrant four, you know, I want you to go there. And there's these flower beds. I want you to plant flowers. So I'm like, okay, that's fine. Showed me how to do it. So I come in, and there's a you know, box of flowers, and he's just like, yeah, throw them in the back of the gator, go over and plant them, right? So gonna go over and plant them, you know, and so I'm thinking, okay, I'll be, you know, doing this the rest of the week, and that's, that's fine. So the next day I come in, boss is like, okay, yeah, I want you to you continue putting those flowers. And so I go, and there's, a, there's flowers, but they're totally different than the other ones. I was like, hmm, okay, all right, throw them in the gator, go, you know. Next day I come in, there's another Different group of flowers, different colors. And I'm like, and I remember thinking, like, that's not what I had in my mind. I'm like, when he said plant flowers, I thought, you know, I was going to, you know, kind of plant all the same one. But it, it dawned on me that, like, even after, you know, like, and it was beautiful, like, after I finished them all, I was like, this is what he had in mind all the time. He'd been there for years. He'd done this, you know. But that was his plan all the time. And it was the same way, you know, for the lamb and he who sits on the throne. That was always the plan. Even though sometimes, you know, as we work against kind of our flesh, and we work against these things that press in on our mind, right? Um, we, we need to push back and work against it. But God's like, hey, that was the plan all the time, that at the end of time, it would have a group that looked like that, right, in the scriptures. All right, that was the plan. Second thing that we can learn uh, from uh, uh, that the plan that the lamb had, and he who sits on the throne, 
It speaks to the worth, right, of a multi-ethnic, multiracial group, right? That the lamb paid the same price for all of them. He paid the same price. Loves them all the same. And that seems like a duh, okay? But, and I'll get to this later, but in our lives, do we walk, live, and think in that reality that we think that way about different ethnic groups and races? But the lamb paid the same price. Another thing, um, that this group that was ransomed from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. This is a group that, that God desired the presence of these people to, to look and be this way. That he didn't desire it to be just one group. He desired this group. Right? In chapter 5, verse 9, it also says, actually it's in verse 10, it says this, that he made this group a kingdom of priests, right, and reign. So he, so he takes this ethnically diverse group and gives them positions of power and authority. This multi-ethnic group. That their kingdom, they're, 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 they're a kingdom of priests, and they're, they're, they're reigning, right? There's a certain position of status that's been given to them. These ethnically diverse peoples are given positions of power and influence. Okay? So there's just a few things there about the the lamb and the, the he who sits on the throne as it relates to this multitude. So let's dive into, uh, and I'm, I'm close to ending, what does it or might it say about us as we think about that multitude and that visual and how that might challenge us? Right? Here's the first thing. Is it our plan in our lives to save racially diverse people groups. Is that how we operate? Do we enter into spaces to save people that are ethnically and racially diverse and different from us? Particularly, here's the catch, when the cost is high to us, right? And we stand to lose something. What could we possibly lose, right? Amongst friends and family, right? Maybe someone's like, oh, you're, you're doing what? You're taking their side on this, right? You're going where to work with who? Right? When it could cost us status, ridicule, exclusion from whatever community we're a part of, or comfort, honestly, it's rare that we would push past that. 
and save ethnically and racially diverse people. Oh, and I'll throw in their socioeconomic. I'm myself included, right? I'm putting you on front street without my, putting myself out there too. Right? So watch this. Here's a passage in Proverbs. Proverbs 28, 21 says, show, uh, show partial, Showing partiality is not good. For a piece of bread, a man will do wrong. What does that talk about? When there is some sort of higher thing we value or we are seeking to protect, we will be partial. Right? We often give out of our abundance, even as that relates to time, volunteer, sacrifice. But when we stand to lose something on behalf of someone who is not racially or ethnically in our group, that's a hard thing. And to be honest, I haven't seen a whole bunch of that. When it's going to cost you something. When it means that whether it's status or resources, you have to have less or you stand a chance of being maligned as well. We don't often go there. But the lamb does, right? Are we willing to do that? Here's another question for us and what, what it may say about us as we look at this multitude. Do we struggle to value the norms or culture and languages of those racially different from ourselves, racially, ethnically? Do we value their norms and culture the same way? Right? You know, I get this question a lot. Well, I won't say a lot, but regular enough to speak to it now. Every once in a while, I have, you know, um, my white brothers and sisters who love me. I love them. And when we get real, real comfortable, they'll ask me. And he said, Brother Aaron, I got a question for you. Why does there have to be a BET, Black Entertainment Television? And why does there have to be a Univision, which is the Hispanic, you know? We're all Americans. Like, why does it have to be? You know, why do we have to do that? Why is there a, you know, uh, an Essence Award and, you know, you know, these, you know, why is there NAACP? And this is what I say. I said those organizations were formed because those subdominant groups didn't see themselves reflected in the leadership, on TV, right? Hey, the whole reason black entertainment television came about, for those of you in the MTV generation, there was a big deal. Remember when MTV first came out, they were receiving a lot of criticism because they didn't play black artists. That was a big deal. You can go back and you can Google it. They wouldn't play black artists. And there was a big deal about it. Then they got to the point where they'd only, like, just, be just like Michael Jackson and Prince, Michael Jackson and Prince, Michael Jackson and Prince. <laughs> then the, 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 those higher-ups in MTV, what they would say is, hey, well, we just, we just play the music. Listen to this. We just play the music that America's, Americans want to listen to.
Now, are they valuing the norms and customs of, of other races? So the African-American community is just like, okay, all right, what else can we do? Black entertainment television. Now, it was great. I loved it growing up, man. Lionel Richie, man. You had, you know, Houdini. You had the Fat Boys. You Curtis Blow. You know, I mean, you know, so like, you know. Um, so, so, but that was created out of dominant culture. For lack of better terms, I don't like that term, but it, I think it makes the point. Dominant culture who holds the seat of power, the airways, resources, determine determine what is valued in a society. You guys following me? Hey, listen to this. And again, I don't mean to be disrespectful, but I want to help you see something, right? You know what white supremacy is? It's not KKK, right? I mean, any, any reasonable person, like, at this, KKK, I mean, like, you know, that's, that's, that's ridiculous, <laughs> you know, all right? So, those fringe groups, I mean, they're, they're, that, that. I'm not as af- afraid of them. Here is what the more subvertive is. You know what white supremacy is? It's the idea that within white culture, European culture, unconsciously and consciously, we set the norms for what is normative, right? And those things are seen as the right way. It affects everything. Movies, magazines, right? Oh, here we go. Image of beauty. Ever go to Walmart or a store and you walk past the magazine rack? There's Cosmopolitan, us, them, whatever, people. What are the images of beauty? What color are they? What are the images of masculinity? What color are they? who in some ways, sometimes when they are not that color, it seems odd to us. That's the danger of, in the truest sense, white supremacy, right? That, that which resists the norms and influence of other cultures, right? Although America is pitched as the great American melting pot. But in practice, so when we think about do we value the norms and cultures of other racially diverse and ethnic groups? Three, um, we often resist multi-ethnic gatherings and gatherings where we are the minority. It is uncomfortable. Like if you, <coughs> do we resist those spaces? Where do, we, where do we live? Now, this isn't about where you live. It's about where you live, right? You can live wherever you want. It's America, right? But where do we choose to move? Is, it, is there the affinity to be in groups that are ethnically like us? Right? And I think that, to, to, I mean, that's all of us to some degree, but I want you to, l- let's lean in on our, on our own self, right, you know. And do we view people as we drive through certain neighborhoods, having not lived there, not knowing what the crime rate is actually there, but we may see certain people. 
and in some cases in certain brown-skinned people, we have no indication what the neighborhood is like, but we may think, ah, it's not a good neighborhood because of people that we see there, right? And where do, what, are, what are the spaces we desire to move into, right? Are they tend to be people that look like us? But that is the group that the Lamb of God desired to ransom and be around. Last point. We struggle to promote, accept, and encourage ethical, racial minorities in positions of power and influence. So watch this. So the Lamb, to him who sits on the throne, he takes that diverse group, their kingdom of priests, and they are reigning, all right? I liken that to positions of power. So as it relates to us, are we promoting, do we accept, do we encourage ethnic and racial minorities in positions of power and influence? I want you to think about how many African-American bosses have you had? Just think about it. How many Hispanic bosses have you had? Native American bosses have you had? Think about what all of your bosses look like, have looked like. Have you ever had a woman boss? And is there a certain theme of leadership? Oh, think about your elected officials. Have you ever had an elected official that was a person of color? Now, press yourself a little bit more to say, let me ask this next question. What does that say, or is it that those persons of color, none of which were qualified ever to be my boss in the industry that I'm in? Is that the case? You're only faced with a few options. Yeah, there are just no African Americans that are qualified to, to be my boss or be operate at that top or no Hispanics or... But think about that, is that? And you would, you would, you would of course say, oh, no, absolutely, of course not, Aaron. Right. But think about, how does that happen? How does that happen? Right? And are we willing to promote? Right? Particularly, are we willing to promote if it means that we might lose something? hey, here's the thing. Whether it's a church, organization, institution, if you're truly talking about a multicultural group in the, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the way that I think honors and glorifies God and we're talking about equality, right? You're cheering for people and helping people, right? They're ethnically and racially different than yourself. Why? You may say, okay, Aaron, we should just treat everybody different. Why? Okay, because, hey, let's move beyond the elementary conversations to say, hey, can we say that in some sense scales are stacked against some people in America? Can we at least say that? And what can I do? And how might God use me, regardless of what it costs me, right, in order to help problems?
as I close. So what should we do? We should pray in humility and ask God to show us what we don't see. One last story. Years ago, I'm working at this organization. It's lunchtime, right? Finishing my, my lunch, and there's a table, uh, probably about eight women at this table. I knew them all. had worked there. I'd been there probably four years. Knew them all. Come past this table lunchtime. All these ladies are laughing, like, historically. Like, man, they're guffawing. Ah! You know, right? So I'm like, okay. All except for one. She's got her arms folded like this. Face is red, and she's clearly mad. And I'm like, this is kind of hot. And I said, hey, ladies, what's going on? So they go, hey, Aaron. But they're still laughing like crazy, except for this one lady. She's like this. And I said, uh, I said, hey, what's going on? And the woman that had her arm folded, she goes, oh, we're just talking about if you're a woman around here, your ideas don't get heard. And I, I kind of was like, I, I probably literally said, what? Like, what? Like, it had never occurred to me. And I, I kind of looked at her puzzled, and she goes, she said, oh, you don't believe me? She said, think about, think about the last time you took something to administration. That thing probably happened, didn't it? Kind of scrolled my mind. I was like, uh, yeah. She goes, Oh, we take things to administration all the time. Guess what we're told? Wait, we'll get back to you, blah, blah. And so I'm having this moment like I'm dumbfounded. Like it's never entered my mind. I've known these ladies for years. I did not know what their experience is like in the same place that I worked, right? Totally different experience. The ladies around the table, I turn to them and I say, really? In unison, they go, oh, yeah. They're like, you didn't know that? And I am like having a moment. And some of the ladies were older. They said, oh, yeah. They was like, I gave up on that a long time ago. And I said, really? They took me into their experience. They gave me a lens that I had no idea. And the Lord helped open my eyes. And from then on out, I began to see things that I had never seen before. Pray that the Lord would help you open your eyes like that. You know. Now, what I could have done what would have been the easier knee-jerk reaction thing to do was to say, ah, come on. I know all those guys. And by the way, all the, all the leadership was male. Come on, they're not like that. You really think that they, they're male chauvinists and they don't? Come on, really? Oh, really? I know Scott's a nice guy. Like Scott wouldn't, I can't see Scott doing that to you. Right? So what does that make those, that, those ladies feel like? couple different things. Here we go again. Number two, mm -mm -mm. blind, right? Number three, nope, don't have an ally in him. Okay. Thankful the Lord helped me see so I could move the other way. And by the way, um, all of us have a spear, okay, and I know that sometimes this can be a hot, contentious topic, but let me universalize it by this. All of us have a spear of influence. All of us have privilege. God doesn't fault you for it. God is sovereign over all. So whatever family you were born to, right, okay, good, bad, or indifferent, however you see it, God is sovereignly over that, right? But it is, it is using whatever sphere of influence, whatever privilege you have to, as Proverbs says, to be a voice for the voiceless, right, to defend the rights of the poor, the needy, the oppressed, right? That's what you do with privilege. You can't help the family you were born to. 
hey, but you can defend and be advocates even when your butt's on the line and you could be exiled, right? And you can be marginalized. That's when you're doing something, not when we give and operate out of our abundance when we don't stand to lose anything. That's where, by the way, that's, check this out. Oh, Pastor, I'm, I'm, I know, I'm sorry. I'm All right. All right. So think about this. I was thinking the other day, I, sometimes I have these conversations with myself like, okay, like, what if like somebody came to me and says, Aaron, like, help us with this problem, whatever. Like, you know, I was, okay, okay, I get so I was thinking, I was looking at this, uh, they're having this debate about like, like healthcare and everything, and I know it's like crazy and everything, and, and so I was like, okay, like someone said, Aaron, what do you think, you know? And I said, okay, right, I get it, you got those that are just like, okay, universal healthcare, you know, one payer system, and I was like, we want choices. And I said, okay, let me try to think biblically about this, like, okay, how would I go about this, right? And it's not, it, it's, it's hard, but here, here's the thing, really, it, this is what would need to happen. Those who have would have to agree to saying, okay, I am giving up my right to whatever I think I have a right to for someone who doesn't have. That's why outside of believers and stuff like this, I mean, it's, you know, because you're asking someone, I have the comfort of this situation. You're asking them, are you willing to be uncomfortable for someone else. But if, if we can do that, that's where we see magical things happen as it relates to the kingdom of God. Be honest with yourself. In keeping with the application, be honest with yourself. Seek to learn from the experience of others. John Perkins, who is a Christian man, he's been doing racial reconciliation for years. I think he's the one who coined the term. Um, he's like probably in his 70s or 80s by now. Um, here's what he said. We need to admit, submit, and commit. And this is also in that book, Divided by Faith. Admit that there are racial problems. Submit to each other by building loving relationships across racial barriers. Commit to overcoming division and injustice. Right. And here's my closing. The lamb that was slain. By his blood, he ransomed people from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue. He ransomed them to he who sits on the throne. This was his plan from the beginning. That we would end with the picture that we see in Revelation 7 and 9. The lamb is not partial. It's not. The one who sits on the throne is not partial. And neither should we be. And we need to resist that because it's just, it's just in that fallen part of us. But the Holy Spirit in us can help us overcome that. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Yeah, this. <laughs> I was going to say, let's, uh, let's thanks Aaron, but you guys did it. Um, Aaron's given us a gift, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it is a gift. Mm-hmm. Um, to come and, and from your own mm. personal experience, invite us in um, mm. and allow us to see. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Thanks. Thanks for having me. He's going to be back in three weeks. Next week I'll be continuing the series, taking a look at really biblically where diversity comes from mm. and how that plays into God's plan.
Um, he's going to be coming back and talking about the challenges of diversity by looking mm -hmm. at the early church, one of the most diverse churches that's ever existed, mm -hmm. uh, the challenges they face and the challenges we face. And then on March 1st, Friday, March 1st, uh, he and his nonprofit, Relates Color, are going to be hosting a forum here on incarceration and the African-American experience. And so we're going to invite you back um, for a conversation about how all of this plays out in real time in our world today. How can mm -hmm. we engage yeah. real issues um, with gospel sensitivity? Yeah. Um, Brother, will you close us in prayer? Absolutely. Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, these are uh, hard things to wrestle with because, Lord, they are so deeply rooted, Lord, consciously and unconsciously. And that's all of us, Lord, and we're all uh, sinful, Lord God, and um, are in great need of you to continue by your spirit to overcome our hearts and minds and the things that, Lord, we hold on to. Uh, but, Lord, let us desire uh, uh, to be free in whatever ways that we aren't free as it relates to these issues. Help us to see what we do not see. Help us to move together, Lord God. Help us, Father, Lord, to have, to work towards heaven on earth, Lord, in this vision that we see, Lord. Um, there is much to confront uh, and challenge, but Lord, you have laid the proper foundation in us, which is the foundation of Christ which binds us together, Lord. We are brothers and sisters in Christ and a part of one family, one ethnos, Lord. As you said in, in, in Ephesians, Lord, you have taken the two men and made them one, Lord God, and we are one in Christ. So I thank you for the work here, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.